Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Welcome back, everyone, to How to Eat an Elephant, fondly referred to in private circles as Heat. <laughs> so glad to have you with us this morning. I want to issue each of you, both you two ladies, Emily and Megan, and all of you listeners, a hearty congratulations on making it to the epilogue <laughs> of War and Peace. It's the beginning of the end. We've been saying that forever, but nevertheless, this time it is even more true. Leave it, it to Tolstoy, though. The, the epilogue has parts, people. Good God. <laughs> um, so we promised, I promised, that I would not spend this entire episode making fun of Tolstoy. So maybe what we should do is do it at the very beginning. Mm. Rip it and off then like a begin taking him seriously. Yeah. Sure. So yeah. as Megan said, when we sat down to get on the meeting today, she said something along the lines of, did anyone else want to set Tolstoy on fire when they started <laughs> reading this section? And I share that sentiment. I want to set him on fire just a little bit. I mean, how many more times, dear, dear heavenly Lord, <laughs> heavenly can we Lord. Yeah. have this conversation? Oh, my word. However, as Emily pointed out to us, I do think there's some clarity in some unexpected places, a couple of pithy statements that tie a nice bow around the point he's been trying to make for low these 1,200 pages. And so I think we ought to dive in. What do you guys okay, think? Okay, well, let's just read the hilarious line. And just oh, yeah. Can, of, oh, can I do it? Way. Can I please do it? <laughs> yeah. Oh! Okay. <laughs> it's page 1130. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, he's talking about... He's talking about... He's making fun of the historians... For, do, for their great man theory of history and stuff. And he's talking about how they draw conclusions about what Napoleon did and didn't do. And and then he's talking about how they blame Alexander for stuff they shouldn't. And he says, one would have to fill 10 pages with writing in order to enumerate all the historians reproach him with on the basis of that knowledge of the good of mankind which they possess. Really? 10? <laughs> oh, 10. 10 is what they got. specific. <laughs> one would have to fill 10 pages. And he's like, 10, I'll raise you a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> I I'll see your ten oh pages. My, I I'll have you eleven hundred and twenty. He's such a brilliant man that there's no way that there's not some self knowledge and like a twinkle in his eye there's, as there's he writes be. that. <laughs> I mean, I wrote I wrote aha with like fifteen A's in my oh goodness, super funny. Okay, but Emily, you were reminding the two of us gripers and growlers. That he actually takes it in some new directions and issues some terse summaries of his ideas here. So why don't you take us that direction? <laughs> well, the discussion here, is, it functions both as another discussion of his philosophy of history, but also marks a transition in the history of Russia. Mm. Um, it's been seven years since the Battle of 1812, since Borodino. Um, and he is kind of, if you don't know the history, he doesn't do a great job of teaching it to you. He's kind of assuming. So for those who might not be as familiar, basically what's happening is that over that time, Napoleon is roundly and soundly defeated and is finally sent to his exile on St. Helena, at which point Europe begins to calm down. And like in his metaphor, 
the the water of the banks of the river stops overflowing and it all kind of settles into the channels where it belongs. But the waters in the banks are seething in their depths. And basically this is to point out that while Russia is no longer at war with the countries surrounding it, there's some civil turmoil that's broiling beneath the surface. Now it's not battles and armies, it's politics. Right. Uh, However, he does use this to point out to us that just as the diplomats who are disagreeing with one another think that they are the ones who are stirring up kind of revolution or whatever in their midst, actually they are just the same as the commanders and Napoleon and Alexander were in the Battle of Europe. And then he goes on to talk about that situation again. And the idea here is that there's a reaction taking place um, and it is neither he his discussion is about whether there is such a thing as chance and genius which i find kind of to be a helpful clarification actually because sure he's been very clear that there's no such thing as genius (laughs) but it is really easy to swing the other direction and say okay well then everything is just chance right like we had these conversations early on so all right like there's there's no meaning. Everything is just like nobody is directing any of the events like things are just randomly happening. And he is clear that it is not chance that there is some invisible hand. Right. Guiding. Events. I agree that this is an important distinction because it's like he's doubling down on something he was cagey with before. The idea of that invisible hand, that sovereign mover who is orchestrating the events of mankind, he's alluded to that. But this is this was a, I think in his philosophical sections, this is the clearest that he's been. He says, chances out, there actually is a creator of sorts who is orchestrating these events. And the purpose of my dialogue is to point out that whether you are a historian or just someone living, you should not look to the ends. You should trust that to the immovable invisible hand. Exactly. It isn't that there is no meaning and it isn't that there is no purpose and that there is no discernible narrative. But it's not your business. Well, the word he keeps using over and over again is it's inaccessible to you. Mm-hmm. The meaning that stands behind all of this stuff is inaccessible to you. And I think that's very, well, it's very humble, actually, yeah, which is not something I ever thought I would say about Leo Tolstoy. But it's humble. It's, it's humility. And he's advocating a, a humble posture towards the way we read history and one another. And that's something that's new as well. We've, we've yeah. seen characters treat each other this way or fail to and reap the you know consequences. But, but I do think this is the clearest he's been about applying all of these heady ideas instead of attacking the historical establishment. He's applying them to, to individual people living their individual mm-hmm. lives. And giving us a prescription of sorts. I like the idea that it's hum- humbling, that it's humility on Tolstoy's part and that he's advocating humility. On the top of page 1132, he says, the words chance and genius do not designate anything that actually exists and therefore cannot be defined. These words designate only a certain degree of understanding of phenomenon. I do not know why such and such a phenomenon occurs. I think that I cannot know it. Therefore, I do not want to know it. And I say chance. I see a power that produces effects incommensurate with common human qualities. I do not know why that happens. And I say genius. So he's underscoring the reason that we turn to these words is because we are humbled. We are small and we don't understand something. And he says, 
actually a better way to handle that down at the bottom of the same page, only by renouncing the knowledge of an immediate, comprehensible purpose and admitting that the final purpose is inaccessible to us, will we see the consistency and expediency in the life of historical figures. So discard these two words and instead admit what's true, which is that this immediate, comprehensible purpose is inaccessible. Humble yourself before history, basically. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting in the passage you just read that, because it seems like one response you could have is say, okay, so it's in the meaning, the purpose is inaccessible to me. Well, then I don't care. I'm just going to ignore it. And he actually in that passage says, yeah, so you, you look at it and you say, I don't want to know it. Therefore, it's chance, like kind of implying that that is also an incorrect, like to say, I don't want to know it whatever. I don't care. That's a cop out too. Yeah. Yeah. That's also an incorrect response to this. And so what he describes is relinquishing, like it's like intention. You both acknowledge that it's inaccessible, but in so doing, like out of the corner of your eye, you glimpse ever so slightly this, this greater orchestration of events that Right. That gives meaning to the world. If what he's talking about is faith, I'm with him. If what he's talking about is some sort of doubling back on itself, reapplication of human wisdom, having achieved the right set of parameters, I'm not with him. But he makes it very, very clear in a line that we haven't read yet, which is this. If we allow that human life can be governed by reason, the possibility of life is annihilated. Mm -hmm. That's as clear as he's ever been. But well, how would you put that in your own words, though? Because I think it could use some explaining. Well, basically, what he's trying to say is that is that the historians that he's he's been on about this whole time, and indeed everyone, looks around themselves, and because of their inability to perceive that chance and genius aren't real things, they're trying to draw conclusions as a means of controlling their world. So they're interpreting phenomena, and they're and they are interpreting events, or maybe the way to put it is that their interpretation of events reveals that they believe they can control the world by acting reasonably. They believe that their activities have an impact on the scope of things, on the story that they are participating in. And that's what he's urging them to reject, that human reason is actually the thing driving the ship of mankind forward into the future. That's why I say he's emphasizing a, a, a humility, right? Well, as I was looking at this, trying to understand that pithy statement that you read about um, if human life is governed by reason, then the possibility of life is annihilated. And I thought, that's such a strong statement. I don't really understand what he means. But that comes at the end of an analysis of Alexander the Great as a historical figure. And he's saying, if the historians, if let's say it's possible that the historians hand back into the past, the yardstick for good and evil, for a, a seamless, a way that this this could have been avoided. Let's say they handed that back to Alexander and he followed the yardstick and did everything right, according to the historians. It seems to me that uh, the end of this paragraph is helpful. He says, let us suppose that this program was possible and was drawn up and that Alexander acted according to it. What would have become then of the activity of all those people who opposed the then tendency of the government, an activity which, in the opinion of the historians, was good and useful? There would have been no such activity. There would have been no life. There would have been nothing. So from a literature teacher's perspective, there would have been no conflict if he had had the foresight of the future. And that wouldn't have been better 
all of the things that happened as a result of a misstep or a conflict or an error because of human reason being fallible um, would have been missed. And that would have been a tragedy of its own. So it seems to me that when he says, if reason were the only thing governing our world, then the possibility of life would be annihilated. He's emphasizing the need for fallibility and conflict for a good story. That's what I got from a literature teacher's perspective. Well, and that's been borne out by Pierre's story and by some of the things that are coming, even at the end of this section today, like life comes out of conflict. That's right. like one of the main theses of his book. And so it makes sense that if we, if we were machines who scientifically could reduce conflict, then we would lose life. Like we would the lose, we life, would become gods instead of creatures. Yeah. And Ian, I think that ties in directly with the humility that you're talking about. The, the need to receive a many faceted, diverse and complicated life from a source much bigger than us, you know, a humility to acknowledge you're a cog in a gigantic purpose that's beyond you, inaccessible to you. Mm-hmm. It's a little bleak, though, when he turns to the flock of sheep as his example, and the sheep that's getting all of the good stuff is the one that's being fattened up for meat. <laughs> I mean, I, there's, it's not wholly consistent, and maybe that's appropriate given his multicolored view of the world, that it's not consistent, but he's not trying to say, because of this providence, all will be well. At least he hasn't said it yet. What he's saying is, do not try and understand. Mm-hmm. And I think it's perilously close, and it has been in the past, and it continues to be now, to nihilism. It's a little bit nihilistic. Although, why would he choose the sheep image? I mean, that is, that is inherently Christian. It is, except you can't tell me that that is a Christian use of that metaphor. No, that's true. What the shepherd is doing is taking the one sheep out of the pen, fattening it with grain so that he can slaughter it and eat it. <laughs> You're right. It's pretty it's bleak. Like, don't, don't there's test no me way on around this. it. You're right. It, yeah. But it's it reminds me of that passage in Exodus where it's like God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? Like he. <laughs> it's a little bit like taking the one sheep out of the fold and like. I just don't know. You can't but, go there. That's too many. Yes, I can because it's 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 a suffering that we don't like. You don't understand why was Pharaoh the bad guy? It, like in that passage, it looks like Pharaoh had no control over his attitude towards the Israelites, and he suffered as a result. And so here's the sheep. Like here's I, see the, the, I see the point that you're making, but that's not the sense in which he's using this, right? In this in this sense, the shepherd is God to the sheep. And, and the movements of his mind and the purposes that he purposes are incomprehensible to them. And all they can do is draw conclusions from a sheeply perspective, right? So what does the God of this passage do? He fattens up one of his sheep to slaughter it and eat it. Okay, but I think this is walking towards a conversation about the problem of pain. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Again, a conflict or a suffering that we see in our own myopic human lens would be, well, would be explainable if we were God, if we could see how it fit in the mm-hmm. greater tapestry. And I thought that's what he was arguing here, like a maybe a more visceral mm-hmm. way to say the same thing. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm not I, I wasn't trying to come down hard on the side of nihilism. It's just present. Right. Well, as he a, has as been flirting with it. Yeah. Yeah, he's been flirting with it. And I, so if you as a listener to our show, if you're reading along and you go, this is a, this is a little deterministic, this is a little bleak, this is a little meaningless. I get you. I don't think that's where he's going to land. 
I hope it's not where he's going to land. <laughs> and I think there's enough um, love lavished on his characters and enough talk about purpose as opposed to, oh, what's the, what's the opposite of purpose in the sense that I mean it? As opposed to one's end. Do you see what I mean? Implied in using the word purpose is a good thing, I if, think. Oh, like cause and effect? That kind of means yes, and ends? It's not, it's not, yes, exactly. That's mm-hmm. what I meant. But it, it's different than means and ends. Yeah. It's, it's for purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that Megan is right that that's the sense in which you have to take this metaphor in the sense of the problem of pain and all the, like the sheep is, I mean, that's, it's the same reason why God makes the church sheep in, in the biblical imagery. The sheep are not very smart. They, they are simply creatures who don't see the bigger picture. And in the sense that if it, like they, this one sheep who separated out is twice as fat, like he enjoys blessings in his life. And yes, he's slaughtered, but like for the good of the the farm, for the good of the, like, there, I don't know, he serves, a, he's serving a sheeply purpose. Like that's still, that. this reminds me of the bee metaphor that's coming up, right? He, it's a sheeply purpose to stay alive until a natural death and, and provide wool. And it's also a sheeply purpose to, to die and to provide like sustenance, right? So there are multi, there, there are many varied purposes, but it's all part of the sheeply nature. Hmm. Yeah, I'll go there with you for sure. So the next step in his argument, having laid all of that groundwork, he wants to go to talking about his favorite subject, quick time guess. Who is it? Napoleon Bonaparte. Thank you. Goodness, that took you guys a long time. Well, I, um, I paused because I wasn't quite sure of the answer. When I was reading along in this particular chapter, chapter three of part one, he is making a huge digression about this man and setting him up as a great man and then tearing him down again. I should have known, but he doesn't call him Napoleon until the end of the chapter. Like he's just talking about a man. And I was so lost, you guys. I had to look up the footnotes (laughs) until he said something like, and then he got, you know, isolated on an island and defended himself. And I thought, oh, wait a second. I think we're back to Napoleon. (laughs) So the the very end of his reign, including the part where he talked about the the attack on Russia. Oh, shut up. Yes. Oh, my God. Okay, so he turns to Napoleon again and he says... Let's tell you the whole story of this guy's life, and let's talk about how the historians filter it through this prism of chance and genius that he's already debunked, right? But then he adds a pair of terms to chance and genius as things that are illusory, that don't exist. And those are glory and greatness, which according to him are the tools of the historian to consider nothing that one does bad and to be proud of one's every crime, mm-hmm. ascribing some incomprehensible supernatural meaning to it. Now, I want to zoom in on the word incomprehensible and tell me what you guys think of his use of that word in this context. Because what he seems to me to be doing is saying when we ascribe glory and greatness to someone, to a man, an individual, what we're doing is saying we're blessing his actions because there is an incomprehensible purpose behind them that comes from a supernatural source. He doesn't want us to do this, but he does want us to recognize an inaccessible, which I suppose is a slightly different word than incomprehensible, source of purpose behind all things. I wonder if an example of this might be like 
this American Civil War. I've mm-hmm. heard, I think Abraham Lincoln, in a very compelling, his second inaugural address, very compelling, says that the blood of the soldiers is a sacrifice mm-hmm. exacted for the suffering of the slaves. On the one hand, it's a, it's a fitting metaphor and it serves its purpose. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it is very mechanistic. Yeah. And to look at suffering that real people endured and to say the reason for this was for this, this good. Yeah. Presumptuous. That you are, yeah, yeah you're I in agree. dicey waters at that point. Because so this is that you mean, what you mean to say is that this is the kind of move that Tolstoy is telling us to avoid. Because you can do it. That That's a fairly, um, that might be a bad example because there are clear lines of morality along it. Say um, something less, more ambiguous, like a World War One or something like that, where we're fighting over territory more or less Mm -hmm. and you're saying uh the battle of the Somme exacted a blood price for the suffering of or like because such and such like the whoever the germans took over the french lands um now the morality of it is stolen property which is a shade less important than lives and to say that lives are paid for stolen property, like now, like now you're reading it in a way that is maybe, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A reductionist? Well, what you're doing is drawing a conclusion and then baptizing the action. Yeah. And you're assuming that you have the correct moral standpoint when what Tolstoy is saying is several years from now, decades from now, it could be the complete opposite. People right. could have. Which is, and I don't mean to start down this train again, I've been well and truly rebuked already once for this, but it, that is where he does flirt with nihilism. Because what he's saying is, don't you draw moral conclusions, man, because those things are in flux. Eee, except that's tough. For, except for, I, yeah, I see what you're saying. And then also, he seems to be doing two things at the same time. He's having the historical conversation, which is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And then also, he's saying these people who consider themselves to be full of glory and greatness commit villainies, and that's a moral word. I know. That's that's the central inconsistency that's bothering me. But I think I just need to let it go, because let me tell you what, you guys. I enjoyed the heck out of reading this characterization of Napoleon in his history. This was great stuff. I mean, the, the way that he says... He has no plan at all. He is afraid of everything, but the parties seize upon him and demand his participation. Oh, it's dripping with irony. Absolutely dripping with it. Like it's, it is, it's perfect. I love this. And so I guess what I'm saying is Tolstoy can tell me not to draw conclusions and draw all the conclusions he wants because I'm here for it. So this whole picture of Napoleon is then he opens the next chapter by concluding what happens to Napoleon. And he says, when he makes it home again, after being defeated so horribly in Russia, his people don't scorn him at first. They actually welcome him back like a hero. But he says it's because they still need him to justify the last joint act. What is the last joint act? Do you guys know (laughs) what that is? He says, uh, Tolstoy says, this man is still needed to justify the last joint act. The act is performed. The last role has been played. The actor is told to undress and wash off his grease paint and rouge. There is no more need for him. And then he goes to the 
the island and is exiled. But what is the last joint act? It, that seems to be a historical question and it might be a hole in my understanding. Yeah, my I'm a little rusty on this point. It's been a <laughs> we start. I read Napoleon's biography two years ago when we started this. Right. <laughs> I wonder if he is. I wonder if it's like he needed to be present to be a scapegoat. So, or like I know that he continues. There's like another battle that he tries to enter after Russia. He's not done yet. They they try to recover, and then he basically just never can, and then becomes, and then they, you know, take it out on him or whatever. But um, I wonder if he's just saying he needed to come back because the history wasn't complete in France. I don't know exactly what act he's referring to. I can't find this line. Where oh, it's guys. in the beginning of chapter four on page 1136. Oh, sweet. Okay, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I wondered about that line as well, and I I did sort of take it as a, a collective act of, of nationalism and self-justification. Justification, yeah. Right? He's there to be the reason both for this noble movement that the French have undergone and then also to take the blame for its failure. For its failure. Okay, that makes sense. And then that puts in context Napoleon's letters that Tolstoy thinks are the greatest evidence for his folly. So his reading of Napoleon's character comes from the letters that Napoleon wrote while in exile on this island. And Tolstoy says of those letters, he was showing to the whole world what it was that people took for strength while an unseen hand was guiding him. So again, this sarcastic tone, he was revealing what an idiot he was (laughs) rather than a strong genius. And really, he was a puppet, not only in the hands of his own countrymen, but in the hands of this unseen hand of Providence. Right. The stage manager. Right. Okay, I've got it. So after Napoleon returned from France, uh, and we get a little bit, this helps with the chapter two, Alexander of Russia gathers a coalition of European forces and mounts and the, the war of the sixth coalition, it's called, they all basically come to you remember that passage where it talked about how eventually alexander was going to get his way and cross the russian border like he wanted to pursue napoleon into france but Kutuzov was just allowing them to exit and it wasn't time for that well he eventually mm-hmm. does get his way and they pursue napoleon into france which is why nikolai is in paris right he's part right. of the sixth coalition going to exact punishment on napoleon and it's actually they finally win and as part of the negotiations for peace napoleon is required to abdicate his his crown and but then go into exile in elba his role is not finished yet the man who 10 years earlier and one year later was considered a bandit and an outlaw is sent a two-day sail from france to an island given into his possession with his guards and several million yep. which are paid to him for some reason because that's part of the contract right he'll say right. he says i'll i'll abdicate my crown because the french are not have not turned against him Right. He's doing this. He's the great hero, right? He's he's laying down his his authority to save his country, and the French are still buying into that. Yeah. Gotcha. And so okay. he gets whatever he wants, so that the Sixth Coalition can get to them get him to agree to the contract. Okay. So having having thoroughly outlined how he views Napoleon and the end of Napoleon's career here, he then turns to Alexander and holds him up as a counterpoint. And the reason that Alexander gets a pat on the back from him is because he more or less bees George Washington. (laughs) 
he basically said, and I'm going to read it to you. He says, Alexander I, having fulfilled his vocation and felt the hand of God upon him, suddenly recognizes the insignificance of this imaginary power, turns away from it, puts it into the hands of the people he despises and who are despicable, and says only, not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name, I am also a man like you. Let me live like a man and think of my soul and of God. So he relinquishes his power, which Tolstoy tells us was imaginary to begin with. So he has learned Tolstoy's lesson. Right. Meanwhile, Napoleon in exile makes childish and deceitful plans for how he would have made mankind happy if he had had power. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so it, it really does come down to the humility I was talking about earlier. Alexander looks at himself and says, I'm a man like any other man. Let me think of my soul and of God. Napoleon looks at himself and says, I am a great man. I am a glorious man. I am a genius. If only everyone would see that and let me make them all happy and fix their world. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel like I get it. And I hope that Tolstoy doesn't come around again, because I think we understood. I think we we got it now. There's no hope of that. Yeah, definitely coming back. We got too many parts. So I want to. We can go back to the bees. If you guys really want to talk about the bees, that's great. But Megan, you were asking earlier how this all connects to the final chapter of our discussion for the day, which is where we go back to the Rostov family. And I wonder if there's a mild, gentle, and and um, and kind rebuke of Papa Rostov latent in all of this. Because when he looks around at the world, what he sees is people to spend money on. He sees people to bless. He sees people to be this. He, he wants to be the center of everything that's going mm. on. And I wonder if it's that lack of perspective on self, that lack of willingness to say, I'm just a man like any other man, that, that oh, ruins the Rostov family. So yeah. you're saying that whereas we have praised his lavish generosity, that there's also a sense in which that means he he thinks he's necessary to bless other people. Well, maybe I could see that. It's also, though, simply just a lack of willingness to acknowledge one's limitations, living yeah. as though there are no limitations. I see it as he is the kind of personality who takes responsibility for everything, everything and everyone. And anyone he sees is his responsibility to love. And that is a positive iteration of a negative quality that is that that arrogance and pride that you're mentioning. And so I absolutely think that's true. But I also thought that it was lovely when he dies, which happens in like the second paragraph of chapter five, <laughs> and it's very understated, when he dies all of the people who've ever been the beneficiaries of his generosity come to his funeral with this feeling of inner reproach and affection as if mm -hmm. justifying themselves before someone. And they think to themselves, yes, be that as it may, he was an excellent man. You don't meet such men nowadays and who doesn't have his weaknesses. Right. And I thought that was so incisive. It's, it's not letting him off the hook for his vices in any way, but it's a compassionate reading. It's basically, we are all Papa Rostov, you know? Well, and, and I wonder if that is doubled down upon when his son Nikolai takes charge. Like he, he redeems the sins of his father by taking control of the situation, which is something that he has not been willing to do this is definite growth in his character mm. he steps in he stays in moscow even though he doesn't want to he's doing things he doesn't want to and he is doing his best to he takes on his father's debts even though he doesn't have to 
be to preserve this, the sacredness of his father's memory and then does his best to to fulfill his obligations. And then I also wonder if it's not just growth of character that's being highlighted, but maybe the the arising of a new generation of of Russian history, right? There, there was the aristocracy who were lavish and decadent in their lifestyle, and now that's kind of coming to a close as we get closer to the end of serfdom. I also just, I'm still thinking about the idea of responsibility and how Nikolai shirked it at the beginning of the novel and and Count Rostov took responsibility, but not for his own things, only for other people's things, and in so doing ruined his family. And what Nikolai is doing by coming in and accepting all of the debt is kind of writing that wrong. He's, he's taking responsibility for the right thing rather than evading it altogether or deflecting and thinking about other people instead of himself. He's looking to his family and for the first time acting like the man we thought he was, you know? Yeah. Speaking of understated, I appreciated that we're told uh, Nikolai accepted the 30000 offered to him by his brother-in-law, Bazukov to pay off the portion of debts he, Pierre, recognized as real debts of money. <laughs> like, in it, when we're talking about, like, newly acquired discernment, Pierre enters the scene and says, okay, these debts, you should actually pay those. These debts, I know That's from up personal to you. experience... <laughs> You shouldn't, like, don't let the people get you down. Like, you don't need to be controlled by this. <laughs> yeah. We see a little uh, Pierre learned lesson as well. Yeah. But I feel for Nikolai because the situation that he's walking into is uh, very similar to the one that his father was in, albeit his personality is slightly different, and he takes it differently. His mm-hmm. attitude towards it is different. But the situation is still, to be perfectly frank, that his mother refuses to live as still. She doesn't have any money, which is true. She doesn't. And so he begins crawling back into debt. Right. And refuses to let his mother know that she's poor. I do think it's a little weird. The mother is kind of the source of all the problems. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought it was really beautiful that we're told he never once thought that his problems would be over if his mother died. Right. That never entered his mind. He doesn't think of that as a solution. Which is good. I appreciate that about Nikolai. I just, I don't know. I feel... I do feel for him. I feel for him in this situation because the he's done something objectively noble and is receiving no understanding from any of the people around him, except for Pierre, which is good. Well, and except for Sonia, who is conniving still. She's glorying. I wouldn't in, call that understanding. This was such a great section. Well, yeah. she seems to be glorying in the reduction of his circumstances because it ties him to her, you know? But I loved the way that that Tolstoy put that as well. He just has such an understanding of human nature. Nikolai is working with Sonia to preserve this illusion of wealth for his mother. And depending on Sonia, who's running the household and doing everything all without any complaint, which is typical and so obnoxious, in his heart, (laughs) it was as if he reproached her for being too perfect and having nothing to be reproached for. In her, there was everything for which people are appreciated, but there was little of what would make him love her. And he felt that the more he appreciated her, the less he loved her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, man. Yep. That's so brutal. I, uh, I remember having a conversation with someone once who said they hate the word appreciate. And this has always kind of stuck with me. And I still use the word, but I always think of this. They hate saying, I appreciate you because it's a kind of like 
evaluative, like uh, monetary term, right? Like I see your services and I appreciate them. I've, I've calculated their value. And that seems to be what Sonia, that's the economy that Sonia is engaged in right now. She thinks that if she puts in the right effort, then she, in return, should get Nikolai's love. And that's just not the dynamics of love, according to Tolstoy. Except where, do you think, do you guys think that that's really what's going on in Sonia's head? Because we are getting it from Nikolai's perspective. Nikolai felt that he owed an unrepayable mm-hmm. debt. Tolstoy never steps out from behind Nikolai's persona to tell us what's going on in Sonia's head. That's true. He doesn't yet, but I read a chapter ahead and we're not off. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. I know. Well, speaking of chapters ahead, I'm pretty eager to figure. I mean, I look casting my eyes on the next page. The words princess and Maria appear in close proximity. (laughs) And that's going to be pretty fun. So uh, any parting shots, Emily? Yeah, I was just thinking this morning that maybe there's such a thing as reading too slowly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I I wonder if that's why that might be why Tolstoy, like why the historical sections are just so hard. Because we have encountered them in such long stretches. Like if you were reading this book, like in a natural like wholeness, then you would it would be paced, right? And you would be going and continuing. But I'm not discounting what you're saying, but he has said it ninety two times. Anyway, I just wanted to I just had the conscious thought, I wonder if like we we counsel that slow reading is good and I still agree with that but <laughs> I actually wonder if you can go too slow <laughs> <laughs> we will yes. definitely speed her up on the next novel <laughs> that's for sure uh, well thank you both as always for your brilliant insights thank you for keeping me on the straight and narrow of, of being kind to our author which is hard for me sometimes but I am so excited to read on to the close of this grand novel mm-hmm. so until we meet again, my friends, online or in person, bon appétit. Bon appétit. Bon appétit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.